The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. We are here uh, in over 600 programs that we've done since the pandemic began, uh, which you can see online and uh, on our YouTube channel and uh, on our Facebook page. And uh, today we have two philosophers from the University of Wisconsin, two professors of philosophy as well. And uh, they've written a book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. We're going to take a nice deep dive into what would make us think more clearly, something that obviously has uh, been on my mind and uh, why I run the Monday Night Philosophy Series at the uh, Commonwealth Club uh, for, for a couple of decades. So uh, first of all, welcome very much to uh, Larry Shapiro and Steve Nadler. Um, and I'd like to plunge right in uh, because you start by saying, that there's an epidemic of bad thinking. So, Steve, when do you think that that epidemic started? Uh, well, we could go back through uh, millennia of history uh, because <laughs> there's always been bad thinking. Um, people who believe that other people should or could be enslaved legitimately, um, people who thought that the uh, Earth was the center of the cosmos and so on. But the, the pandemic we especially have in mind um, really uh, became alarming to us, I'd say, in the last four or five years, um, with a, seems to be a proliferation of conspiracy theories about stolen elections, about climate change being a hoax, uh, about uh, vaccines being dangerous and caused by 5G networks and so on. And this proliferation, I think, has become more dangerous and bad thinking has become more dangerous because of the, the ease with which people are overwhelmed by information through social media. And I think the, the credulity and the naivete with which they simply take in information and form beliefs, which to us seem to be rather irrational and irresponsible. Is this part of the democratization of society and culture? We don't have a, an elite running things anymore, and this is a kind of reaction against the elite. Uh, what, do you, what do you think, Larry? I mean, do you think that this is part of everybody having more power and more access? You know, people used to say, um, I'd love to be able to read other people's minds. Uh, the Internet now allows us to read other people's minds, and it probably doesn't look nearly as attractive as it used to when it was a mystery. Oh. Well, I, I do think that uh, with the advent of social media, things like Facebook, uh, and also right-wing conservative radio and, and television, the, uh, the the amount of bad thinking out there is is a lot greater than it used to be. It's it's sort of like uh, you know we now have the uh, Delta variant of COVID to worry about and. And social media is, is the Delta variant compared to the, uh, the the less virulent strains of COVID that were out there uh, last year. So what we see is uh, with, with things like Facebook, 
and and other social media venues, it's a lot easier to spread bad thinking than it than it used to be. Uh, it used to be, uh, you know, a group of people might have believed something on uh, for not justified reasons, but because this group wasn't able to spread its its doctrines, the the movement would eventually just sort of disappear. So I think a good example, which um, you, you mentioned in your book, um, is that the earth is flat. Now, there is a society, the, earth, the Flat Earth Society, that still somewhat believes that. But the amount of people that accept this is extremely small. Even, even among the conspiracy theorists, that's a fairly small you know, thing over to the side. Um, and I, when I think about that, I always think you know, there's, there's no, no idea ever disappears from human life. It just loses market share. You know, and and fortunately, Earth is flat has is really, you know, way down. Um, and I, I think about, for example, people only 200 years ago said women can't be educated, you know, or this group of people can't be educated or slaves can't or at least shouldn't be educated, that kind of thing. And the 20th century has piled up evidence, as you guys would say, piled up a lot of real evidence that that was nonsense. You know, that that was a form of bad thinking, as, as you said at the beginning, Steve. So um, let's talk about the Earth is flat as an example of what you mean by bad thinking, um, because it's pretty neutral at this point, um, and maybe the least controversial thing we can talk about, and we'll talk about more controversial things soon. But but it's a good example because you're not talking about bad and good thinking in terms of the the, the uh, religious idea about good and bad. You're talking about it's, it's ineffective or it's not rational, et cetera, et cetera. So Steve, you want to talk about how that applies? Yeah, uh, by good and bad thinking, we mean both uh, good and bad as rational evaluations. So a belief can be rational or irrational. And we also mean it in moral terms. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's not a religious notion. That's why we don't use good and evil. Um, and by bad thinking as a rational phenomenon, what we mean is forming your beliefs in an irrational manner. That is not forming them on the basis of evidence that supports the truth of the beliefs. Uh, you may have very good reasons for believing what you believe, whatever it may be, whether you, you find comfort in the belief that the earth is flat or that's what you've always been told throughout your life. Uh, and these are reasons why you have come to hold the belief, but they're not what philosophers call epistemic reasons that support the truth of the belief. And bad thinking is when you form your beliefs in this epistemically irresponsible way. You don't tailor them to the evidence. And bad thinking becomes a kind of epistemic stubbornness when you continue to hold these beliefs in the face of evidence that they are false. Now, I would suggest, and this will be where we start to enter the controversial area, that there's not a great deal of qualitative difference between the bad thinking that goes behind uh, flat earth thinking and the bad thinking that goes behind, let's say, conspiracy theories that uh, Trump's election was stolen by a deep state and by a cabal of Democrats who have a child pornography ring and engage in cannibalistic activities. Um, there's no reason to, for thinking that that belief is somehow a little bit more reasonable than the flat earth belief. They're both great instances of bad thinking of people um, not behaving rationally. Let's use that example again, the earth is flat to, to, to compare with what you just said about the current thing. Because if you went back 3,000 years and said, is it irrational to think the earth is flat? Well, most people would say the evidence that I see with my senses is that it is. But then there were, you know, 
philosophers and, and scientists, you know, the beginning of that in ancient Greece that looked at it and couldn't tell by the shadows and at noon and in different places. And there's a certain amount of evidence, the amount of evidence is maybe two or 3%, it seems like, uh, that there's something wrong with that theory. And then they use that. But, but by the time, I mean, a lot of people think that everyone thought the earth was flat until Columbus sailed, but that, that's not accurate. That's not scientifically accurate. There was a guy in, in the third century BC that figured out the circumference based upon the idea the earth was a sphere. He got the circumference within a thousand miles, uh, you know, 24, 25,000 miles, uh, Erastosthenes. And so they already had enough facts to make accurate observations or, or predictions about the earth. Now we have all the pictures from space and everything else. And so the evidence has piled up so that it's like 99% clear to everybody, other than your observation when you walk out the door and it looks flat, that the earth is a sphere. So when we're talking about these conspiracy theories, you know, so that, that's what happened to the flat earth. And even then you have people who, with 99% of the facts against them, uh, We'll, we'll go into that a little bit later, this confirmation bias idea that you, you, you talk about. But if you, if you talk about that in relationship to what's going on with these conspiracy theories, they, they tend to pick one or two or three or four facts, throw them together. My, my favorite, I don't know if you've seen that one recently, but my favorite is this guy McAfee, uh, the guy who died in the, 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 he was a software guy and he died in the Spanish prison. A few days later, the condo in Florida went down that everybody heard about that collapsed. And, and a day after that, there was a conspiracy that he had hidden his secret information in that condo. And so the CIA had to destroy that building in order to, in order to get rid of that secret information. Now, th th that kind of thinking is so fascinating. Now, why don't you explain, uh, go ahead, uh, Stephen, why don't you explain, you know, yes, there's two or three facts there, but there's like 100 uh, false assumptions. So why there are. is it that doesn't work? Well, it doesn't work because that's just not how at least um, logic and rationality um, should lead us to form our beliefs. You don't simply take a few convenient facts and decide, oh, yeah, that works. Somehow that, that coheres with some superstitions I have or some prejudices I may have about the, uh, the American government. Uh, and I think that's how people do seem to be. Um, acting in these irrational ways. They, they come to the facts with preconceived opinions. And rather than modifying those pre preconceived opinions in the face of evidence, new evidence, um, they uh, uh, twist everything around and rather make the evidence, uh, the new evidence, fit their preconceived opinions. And voila, you have, have an irrational belief, one that's not justified. But there are objective standards for when beliefs or propositions are truly justified. It's not a purely subjective matter of fact. Um, there's, there, there, there may never be a point at which you can say that this or that belief is absolutely confirmed and scientists no longer, um, you know, after the 17th century, scientists gave up, for the most part, the search for absolute, indubitable, 100% certain truths. But that doesn't mean there's not a spectrum and at one of the spectrum, there are those beliefs which receive sufficient justification to make it rational or reasonable to believe them. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating because um, people, of course, want certainty. And uh, I think uh, the uh, Feynman, the, the, the uh, physicist, uh, made, made it's just you just could get to live with uncertainty. That's the way things are. 
but because people prefer certainty, I think it makes it easier for them to choose. So I have, I have a question for you, Larry. What are the facts? I mean, there are facts that make people distrust governments. There are facts that make people distrust doctors. There are facts that make people distrust certain things. So there, there's something there, just like there, there was the viewpoint that, that when you look at the earth, it looks flat to you. Um, so how do you take them from, how do you take people from the facts that they rely on to piling up all the other facts that tell them, uh, but that's not the right perspective or that's not a full perspective? Part of the answer to your question, George, is going to have to involve uh, a psychologist, I think. Uh, so philosophers are good at diagnosing when reasoning goes wrong and why it goes wrong. And uh, the psychologist uh, specializes in trying to understand why people come to adopt the beliefs that they do. So the, the philosopher might look at the, um, the flat earther or the uh, vaccine conspiracy theorist person, or the uh, the insurrectionist, and say, if we look at the evidence, and we think about the conclusion you want to reach on the basis of this evidence, we'll find out that that conclusion is well not is not well supported by that evidence. And so, the, the philosopher's job is a kind of normative enterprise. The philosopher is saying what you ought to or you should believe. Whereas the psychologist has a role here too, because the psychologist can tell us why it is people are inclined to adopt beliefs that the philosopher judges not to be justified. Can I, if I could add a point to that, when Larry says that what the philosophers do is tell you what to believe, it's not that we tell you what substantive things to believe, that you should believe this and you should believe that, but rather what the philosophers give you are tools for deciding when you ought to believe that something, that is when you have sufficient justification for believing it. Now, now, George, you referred also to facts and that these people have these facts and that they form their basis on these facts. How do we explain, how, how do we go about um, disputing with them what the facts are? But I think in m many of these cases, what they take to be facts are not in fact facts. That is, they have certain beliefs about what is the case when in fact these beliefs are false. Now, it's, there is no subjectivity about this. There are facts. These philosophers still continue to believe in the existence of facts, unlike perhaps, say, other humanities disciplines. I don't know. Um, but um, very often, these false beliefs, these irrational beliefs, are formed on uh, the wrong basis because while the person may believe that they have the facts, um, our job may be to show them that what they take to be facts that is, their false beliefs about what are the facts are in fact false, and that these are not truly facts. Well, I, I agree with that. I, I think when I was talking about facts, I meant something very general, like, has uh, a government official ever lied to us? Well, we know that, that that's true. Yeah. That, that's what I meant by it. And, and therefore, they can, they can jump from that to, and now they did it again. Uh, that, was, that was the, yeah, go ahead, uh, Larry. Yeah, yeah I, could, I could understand why some people are, skeptical of, uh, of of things like vaccines. I mean, especially uh, members of some communities like the African-American community, uh, it, it's hard to forget things like Tuskegee. Uh, but we now have, I mean, think about, think about what would have to be true if vaccines were in fact not safe. What would have to be true is that 
all these independent organ all these independent health organizations all these independent pharmaceutical companies many of which are in competition with each other and are looking for reasons not to agree with each other there's a consensus among all of these different groups and to think that all of them are making up data uh, and all the millions of trials have not actually occurred or been misrepresented. At that point, it's overwhelmingly unlikely that the vaccines are not safe. So I can understand skepticism among some members of some communities who have been harmed uh, by the US government in the past, but that's not a good enough reason to ignore the present mountains of data that speak to the safety of the vaccine. It's one of the ironies, I think, is that, is that uh, people who um, are afraid that the government is doing this and are afraid from the conspiracies actually have a higher opinion of the intelligence and abilities of the elite that are running things than the people who accept it because they, they believe that they can work together in these ways which anybody who has worked in a university, at a department, at a, at, at, a, at a government facility or a big organization or coordinate, they know that people can't work together in a way that would ever create this kind of a conspiracy, as you said. And so not maybe not having the experience or at least they have a higher opinion about how people can pull things off um, than, than the people who, who, who agree that they're probably doing it accurately and the facts are lining up. But I think you know, one of the points that you made about the vaccine, I think is very useful in that a year and a half ago, when they were first getting started, skepticism was far more reasonable than it is now with a couple hundred million people here having been vaccinated and, and, and probably a billion in the world. Um, and, and we're not dropping like flies uh, as a result. And that would certainly be facts that would pile up. But as you said, yeah, go ahead, Larry. Uh, Stephen. Yeah, so George, the point you just made about the uh, perhaps high opinion and that these conspiracy <laughs> theorists must have about government officials and so on. That points to another aspect of irrationality. Sometimes it's not simply failing to tailor your beliefs to the evidence at hand, but it's uh, inconsistency in your set of your beliefs. So on the one hand, in order to believe that these government officials are involved in a gross um, and malignant effort to uh, either kill us or uh, subdue us, um, that may be inconsistent with other things that you may believe about these people. And one of the goals of good thinking is to ensure that our beliefs cohere, not just with the facts, with the evidence, and that we form our beliefs in a rational way, but that our beliefs themselves uh, are internally coherent. That is, we don't believe both that one thing is true and that something else is not true when in fact they are something else is true when in fact they can't both be true at the same time. But let's, uh, before we go any deeper into this, let's talk about beliefs all by themselves. We believe things. I mean, obviously, there's only a few things that can be proven, and they're in math and in a few other areas, and almost nothing else in science is proven, but there's, you know, a, a great deal of evidence, or there's, you know, and, and how reliable it is, and that's what you guys have, have been working on, what you write about. How reliable is the evidence? How reliable is the logic behind the theories and the evidence? Um, but it's interesting to me because we, we do have, end up having to rely on our beliefs, even though our beliefs don't change reality. You know, whatever the reality is we have, uh, whatever our beliefs are about the reality, doesn't change what the reality is. It might change our behavior. You know, and that's one of the things you're saying. It leads to bad acting. Um, 
but it doesn't change the reality itself. So um, why don't you, uh, why don't we move to say uh, some of the observations that people have made? You had a great quote from, from Francis uh, Bacon, uh, Larry, in, in the book, um, which, which explained from 400 years ago what this bad thinking kind of is like. And maybe you, can, you don't have to read it or anything, but just what, what did he say 400 years ago that made it fairly clear? It sounds like it was you know, applicable to today. Uh, Bacon was identifying two related sorts of, of issues that bad thinkers tend to exhibit. One is uh, a confirmation bias. Uh, and, and by that, what, what Steve and I mean is that people tend to look at only the sorts of evidence that supports their belief rather than thinking about evidence that might run contrary to their belief. So for, for instance, if, if you were wondering uh, whether the vaccine was dangerous, let's say, you'd only focus on those very few cases where someone might have had a bad reaction to a vaccine. And you wouldn't think about the billion other cases in which people showed no, no reaction at all. So confirmation thinking, uh, conf the confirmation bias is this bias to ignore all the evidence that speaks against your belief and take seriously only that evidence that supports your belief, that confirms your belief. And another sort of uh, related issue is that, uh, and this takes us to uh, the philosopher Karl Popper, lots of people will um, only think about the sorts of evidence that, well, lo lots of people will adopt a view according to which their theory, their hypothesis about the world can be made to fit with any sort of evidence at all. Evidence that you would ordinarily think would be contrary to the belief is somehow adopted as just another reason to believe what you want to believe. So uh, horoscopes are a great example of this, where the astrology, the astrologer tells you that uh, you're going to have a wonderful day at work, and uh, it ends up the end of the day that you've been fired and you think my astrologer misled me but lots of astrologers would say no in fact you did have a wonderful day at work you were fired of course but this is this is great because you now have an opportunity to look for other jobs which will be even better for you in the future and so so not only do we have people who ignore the evidence that uh, runs contrary to what they believe and and focus only on the supporting evidence we also have people misinterpreting or interpreting in a, in a light favorable to their own views the sorts of data that should be taken to be uh, contrary to their views. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think why I mentioned the thing about belief before, that a lot of people don't understand uh, what what's reliable evidence is, comes from and so on and so forth, because uh, they think of proof. Either you, you, scientists are out proving things, but that's that's a, a very very small part of what's possible. And and you you talk about the the logic of deduction that actually works in this way or moves us close to being very reliable. But the more interesting forms of logic are the ones that can't get there. Um, and and so one of the things that you mentioned is that a big part of most theories is that you have to be you have to prove that they're false. Or, or demonstrate that they're false, that can be done much more easily than that they're accurate. You can get reliable evidence that supports them, but it's hard to prove that they're true. Um, but you can prove that they're false. And uh, 
that's that's one of the they had a, a great game in there about um, four cards with the the uh, odd number and the and the alphabet. Uh, I thought that was very good because people will pick the thing that looks like it's going to prove it when that's just one example. And when I read that, I, I thought of uh, one of my favorite you know examples of this from my real life. I was at a dinner in Washington D.C. with a bunch of lawyers, and there was a labor department lawyer um, who was the wife of somebody else that I knew, and she said. Um, there are, there are only, everyone only has one or two children. She, she, she believed that nobody had more than two children. And, and, and someone said, uh, the reason it came up is because I have 11 brothers and sisters, and I, I happened to mention it. And she said, I don't believe you. Um, and, and, and she said, there's only one or two children. And there was a guy at the table who had four children. I got him to say, no, I have four children. And she said, I don't believe you. Everybody that I know has either zero, one, or two children, and therefore there can't be more. And so I said to her, I said, you're in the labor department. I said, what's the average number of children in America uh, per, per you know, family? 2.1, something like that. And I said, doesn't, doesn't that mean that somebody has to have more than two? And she said, no, it doesn't. I, so I, I, and I, and she was, and I, I thought maybe she was drunk, but she wasn't even drunk. So... It, it, people can develop those ideas based just on their own experiences. Um, and then they, as you said, that's, that's so interesting that you can just eliminate all evidence to the contrary. Uh, well, she, she would be a very good example of the person whose belief system is inconsistent. On right. the one hand, she believes that nobody has more than two children. On the other hand, she believes that the average number of children per family in this country is 2.1. Well, you can't yeah. believe both of those things at the same time. No, no, but she's, she did well at it. <laughs> well, and, yeah. And I it, 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 she should go back to statistics. It could be that she was, um, it, it could be that she was almost right. Um, and that, uh, <laughs> there's only one, one individual has about 10 billion children. Uh, so, but everyone else has, has two or one. <laughs> so, so talk about how people who, who feel, I mean, because it seems to me that what you can do with your book and what you're trying to do with the book is to take the people who want to think rationally and give them the tools to do it, not, not to help the people who don't want to think rationally or, or don't have any faith in it at all. Um, and, and so explain uh, the difficulties about uh, induction by enumeration. Larry, you want to do that? Yeah, so we, in, in induction is this method of reasoning in, in which we examine a small sample of something. And what we do on the basis of our examination of, of this sample of things, we, we make some claim about items of the same kind that fall outside the sample that we've actually observed. So, uh, you know, imagine you have a, a, a box of chocolates and uh, you, you bite into one and there's a, a, a truffle in the center and you've got another 100 boxes of chocolates in this uh, another hundred chocolates in this box, and at this point you're you're not in a good position to say that every chocolate in the box has has a truffle center because you've only sampled one of them. And this is a pretty obvious point. I think everyone is familiar with the idea that uh, you you can't make a conclusion about a large class of things on the basis of the examination of just a few of them. But but what we see is that. People don't understand the the sort of implications of of this error, and we discuss in the book a, a case where um, 
small schools are being promoted uh, because it's thought that small schools uh, have a greater proportion of excellent students than uh, large schools do. And this is a small sample. Uh, a small school provides you with a small sample of, of students. And when you're looking at such a small sample, you're, you're risking error because samples of a small size can be misrepresentative. So think about this. If I flip a coin twice and get heads each time I flip the coin, that's 100% heads. But there's nothing too unusual about that. We've only flipped the coin twice, and each time we flip it, there's a 50% chance that it's going to land heads. If I flip the coin 100 times, that's a much larger sample. And if I still get only heads, then we have reason to think that the coin is biased. It's not a fair coin. So if we get all heads with two flips, we shouldn't jump to any conclusions about where the whether the coin is fair or biased. If we flip it 100 times, well, then we have greater evidence uh, that it's biased if we've come up heads each time. Well, in the small school situation, if we look at a school with only a few students, that's like a few coin flips. And it might be that in a, in a school with a few students, we have a greater representation of excellent students than we would on average. But if we also look at schools that have a greater proportion of bad students, we'll find they're small schools too, because it's like flipping tails twice with those two coins. You'll, you'll see an overrepresentation of good students in, in small schools and an overrepresentation of bad students in small schools. And so this kind of sampling error that we see in cases of induction by enumeration can lead you astray uh, because you, you, you're not uh, making the correct judgment about what's actually representative of the sample when you're looking at only a small sample. George, I like the way you led up to that question, though, by focusing on who this book is supposed to be directed at, because there's a bit of a paradox here. Uh, it seems that the people who most need lessons in good thinking are the people who are least likely to read the book. Uh, so you're absolutely right. On the one hand, it's for people who would like themselves to become better thinkers or to, you know, at least to see what philosophy can do for them as thinkers, as reasoners. But I think our other also hope is if you know, even if we give up on those people who are the most guilty of bad thinking, those most the most irrational conspiracy theorists out there, the people who all lined up um, and assaulted the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, um, if, even if they're not likely to read the book, there are people out there who know people of that sort, like your friend who works for the Labor Department. Um, and hopefully they'll find this book useful for approaching their friends and their family and other acquaintances who are guilty of outrageously bad thinking and hopefully bring them a little bit closer to um, a more rational life. You stole my next uh, question. So that, that was what I was going to say. You know, that was perfect because um, I think, you know, that that's what, what's most useful about this, besides thinking yourself more clearly, is to understand why other people get it wrong and maybe have a little bit more empathy for their situation as well, because uh, even if you can't reach them, you at least kind of know why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and, and I think it's a great example. And at the risk of, of you know, helping the conspiracy theorists, I, I'd love it if you, Stephen, you mentioned in this small schools thing, Bill Gates spent how much money on this? And maybe that's why he needs to also, you know, uh, make us all 
eat these vaccines and make a lot of money on that too, since he's not rich enough. But but he spent two billion. So somebody like Bill Gates spent two billion based on that thing. So why, why don't you tell that part of the story? I think that's that, that was fascinating. Uh, Larry, I think you're more familiar with that case than I am. Yeah, well, Bill Gates um, had this initiative to support small schools. The idea was go to a, a, a town or a community where there's a large school, break that school into smaller schools, and then we'll have uh, the kinds of attention lavished on our students that uh, Gates and, and many of his advisors, I mean, I'm sure Gates was just following uh, policymakers, uh, and so the thought was we convert large schools into small schools and small schools breed excellent students. But as as I was just explaining, small schools also contain lots of unrepresentative amounts of, of poor students. The, 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 the bad thinking involved in cases like this is that you see a pattern such that uh, such as you'll see a lot of good students in a small school. And you automatically jump to the conclusion that there's some causal relationship between the size of the school and the quality of the student, when in fact there's no causal relationship at all. Uh, and you're better off sending your child, it turns out, to a larger school because they'll have more opportunities and they'll have a better selection of better teachers. So um, when you start seeing these patterns that exhibit themselves in small samples, like uh, two heads in a row, if you automatically jump to a causal explanation, uh, you, you're, you're exhibiting bad thinking. Yeah, I thought that was very clearly done in, in your book. I mean, we have a very, very good examples about just the idea, and then people can understand that better with polling and stuff like that. The polls are not are not a wide enough sample, or you know, they try to do fewer people, but but at least distribute the variety of people that they're talking to to get closer to an answer. Um, but how many people do you need before you get there? Um, and 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 anything that's too small a sample is going to have a, a bias either one way or the other off of the norm. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. Now, there's another one that you talked about: base rate, uh, the base rate uh, problem. Uh, Stephen, would yeah. you? Is that Stephen? You want to talk about that one? Or I'll, 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 you can do that I'll, one too. I'll cover that one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the basic idea behind a base rate is that there's some things in the world that are just unlikely. Uh, so it's it's unlikely that uh, that um, you're going to catch a certain disease, or it's unlikely that you're going to see an albino crow. So we use the term base rate to talk about just the, the frequency of certain events in the world. So the base rate of an albino crow, I don't know what that is, say it's you know one in a million or something like that. And this just means basically that if you have someone saying, claiming that they saw a white crow, you have to think about the frequency of crows, white crows, albino crows in the world. And because the frequency of albino crows is so small, that means that if someone claims to have seen a, a white crow, they need a lot better evidence to convince you that they really did just because white crows are so rare. If they, saw, if they said they saw a black crow, it wouldn't even occur to you to question how reliable this person is because most crows are black. But if they see a white crow, it's incumbent on them to convince you that they're correct. 
the evidence they need to provide you that they actually saw that white crow has to be a lot higher, a lot greater than the evidence they need to provide you if they saw, say, they saw a, a black crow. And as far as conspiracy theories goes, this, this applies in the following sort of way. Conspiracy theories are the most unlikeliest of things. I have uh, a sister-in-law who I kept in mind when I read this book who believes things like aliens built the pyramids. Uh, now, it's true that there are questions about how the pyramids were actually constructed, uh, although I just read an interesting piece in the, in the New Yorker about some guy who's devised a machine that's going to be, that he thinks could have lifted the, the, the huge rocks. But um, it's so, it's, yeah, it's so unlikely that some alien civilization, uh, first of all, develop the technology for space travel, this is not easy, and then use their technology, their advanced technology to travel to Earth and to help Egyptians build pyramids. That is just such an unlikely, improbable event that to think that the pyramids are actually built by aliens rather than, say, by some technology that we don't presently understand that was available to the ancients. That's an example in which we can think about things like base rate fallacies, because what's being claimed is so improbable that the evidence that we ought to demand before we believe it, before we believe that aliens built these pyramids, should be much greater than what any of these conspiracy theorists has, has provided us with. Yeah, it's, um, it's just too interesting to think you know, for some people that it would have to come. But your point about the aliens, I mean, it, it's a little bit like if you have a whole bunch of ants living in your backyard and that makes you the alien, and do you ever go and help them build their home? Or do you, <laughs> do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, why would, you, why would you spend your time? on If you had the technology to come here, why would you spend your time on that? I mean, it could be some kind of nation building, but, but you know, uh, Americans have learned that nation building doesn't work too well. I, I'm sure the aliens, if they can come here, must have at least figured that one out either. Um, but one thing about your white crows, I, I have to throw in something. I have a friend who lives in Olney, Illinois, and they have white squirrels, like thousands of white squirrels in Olney, Illinois, and it's known for that. And it's just weird. It's an unusual location huh. down in, in, in... They have a, a breeding population of albino squirrels. breeding population squirrels, of huh? white squirrels has been there for a long time, and it, it's, it, they, that's their claim to fame, this, this uh, small town, because it's just so unusual. Uh, but anytime you uh -huh. go there, you can see them because there's so many of them. Um, so they could learn, they could develop, if they only lived in only, they could develop a bias in favor of white squirrels versus all other ones. And I think that's a good example of what you're, you're saying, because if you, if you never left town and you only saw white squirrels, you would be surprised to see that that's actually the minority. Yeah. Right. Um, so That'd be a sampling bias. The sampling bias. So Steve, one of the things that you talk about uh, near the beginning of the book is that there's different kinds of oughts. You know, there, there's, there's the... And you mentioned the prudential ought, you mentioned the epistemic ought, um, and the moral ought. And I, I thought it would be good to kind of explain the difference between those things, because when you were talking earlier, you said, this is how we should think. But you don't mean that people have to think it. It's just that this is a, a, a more effective way of thinking. So maybe explain that uh, role of the philosopher in explaining things. Yeah, so the prudential ought, um, and I think everybody is familiar with this um, from their everyday experience, um, is really an ought that's conditional. If you want something, um, here's the best way to go about doing it. So let's say um, I, need, uh, I need some oranges to make orange juice. 
well, in that case, I ought, and there's no oranges at home, then I ought to go to the market and pick up some oranges. Um, similarly, if I want to run a sub five minute mile, I ought to train. These, um, if I don't train, I'm not going to get what I want. So there's, a, there's an element of, of counsel or prudence here. These are what uh, the philosopher, the 18th century German philosopher, Immanuel Kant called hypothetical imperatives. They don't command you to do something, period. They command you to do something only if you want something else. So if I want to become healthy, I ought to not eat 18 bags of Cheetos. That's a prudential ought. Um, a epistemic ought um, is not, as you said, it's not saying you have to believe this. You have to believe this particular truth or this particular proposition. But rather, it's an ought that says, given the evidence in favor of this belief, um, you are being somehow epistemically irresponsible if you don't believe it. The evidence points to the truth of the belief. And on the assumption that you're interested in having true beliefs, you ought to believe this because the evidence points to the truth of that belief. Finally, um, moral oughts are oughts that are commands to perform or refrain from performing certain actions. If I say, do not lie, do not steal, do not kill, um, those are moral oughts. And here, too, you can think of moral oughts. Kant thought of them as categorical imperatives. They are commands that are unconditional. Do not kill, period. It doesn't matter what you like to do. It doesn't matter what's in your own best interest. It doesn't matter what gives you pleasure. Do not kill. That's a categorical or absolute moral ought. You ought not to do that. And you're not even taking into account the fact that it might be in the other person's best interest in the few cases where it is. Correct. It's, it's absolutely unconditional. But other people think that moral oughts are conditional. Um, for example, if I were a utilitarian, I would say that what makes an action something they ought or ought not to do depends upon the conditions. Namely, will this action lead to some increase in overall good? Let's say the good is happiness, and I believe that moral actions should increase happiness. Then if this action under these circumstances increases happiness, I ought to do it because it, it'll get me and in a way, it's sort of a, it's like a prudential ought, except in a very moral context, because it affects the well-being um, uh, and or suffering of other sentient creatures. Uh, and that um, the basis for that morality or ethics, um, of course, mostly has been religion, but there's also a philosophical basis for making these ethical decisions, too, in your case, in the case you just mentioned. You take into account other people's interests in addition to your own, or or identify your own interests with their interests. You you want people around you to be happier rather than than less happy. That right. Kind of it may be that the even the utilitarian recognizes there's at least one categorical ought, namely, um, act in such a way that you increase the general level of happiness, and then all other actions become um, conditional oughts. Will this action increase happiness? If so, then you ought to do it. And maybe one of the uh, other uh, imperatives should be that, that you think conditionally. That is, that, that you're not thinking that you have the absolute final answer, um, but you think that all the evidence and reliable evidence is here, just like uh, the scientific attitude towards science. You say, this is the best possible theory right now, the most internally consistent, the most externally consistent with the evidence we have. 
But we've noticed that this keeps changing every 20, 30, 40 years with the speed with which we're going. And so I, I will hold to this until proven otherwise or have, a, have a something better to think about. And I think if you just have that, that small amount of uncertainty, um, you're in a much better situation for learning and improving. But again, we go back to uncertainty versus certainty. People don't like that uncertainty. Right. Yeah. yeah, if if what we call epistemic stubbornness is a vice, the yeah. corresponding virtue would be epistemic humility and yeah. well, epistemic responsibility, but also epistemic humility, um, always recognizing that you could be wrong, that maybe you're justified in the belief you hold, given the evidence you have at hand. But for all you know, around the corner is evidence that may falsify that belief. Right. Well, well let's talk about falsifying uh, beliefs again a little bit more, because I think that this is where um, outside thought is, is more convincing uh, to people than, than a lot of other areas. Because I think if you can show that that belief really is, is, is false, then, then you have a much more powerful persuasion uh, tool. So, uh, Larry, do you want to talk a little bit about how we can do that? Uh, yeah, so let, let's go back to Flat Earth. Uh, so, as, as you pointed out, George, there's, there's still people who believe that the Earth is flat. Uh, I remember my, my daughter convinced me to watch a documentary uh, that followed a group of um, Flat Earthers to their society meeting. I, I can't remember what it was called, but... The, the, these people had um, developed all sorts of theories to try to explain the sorts of observations that most of us take to be establishing uh, the, the, the truth that the Earth is, is spherical rather than, than flat. And so they were, they were, their, their views were what Popper would have called unfalsifiable, no matter what evidence you point to them and say, you know, well, well, look, when we go up into space, it certainly looks like the Earth is round. And they'd say... Well, that's because the Earth is actually plate shaped, and you're only seeing one one side of the Earth and and not the other. And uh, you know, and then this this thing has to spin as the satellites go around it in order to show only its flat face and 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 things like that. But the thing to do in situations like that, I think, is say to these flat Earthers or or whatever group you're interested in having a conversation with, say, what is the experiment? What is the observation that would convince you that you're wrong. And if they're unable to provide you with a single observation that would convince them that they were wrong, then they're not playing fairly. Uh, they're, <laughs> they're not allowing their, their theory to be put to the test. I think everyone sees the value of testing a theory. But in order to test a theory, what that means is you need to make some that theory needs to generate some sorts of predictions that can be either true or false. If it doesn't generate any kind of claim that can be tested for its truth, it's impossible to test that theory. You had a great example. First, you, you quoted Karl Popper in your book about that and saying, I think it was him that said um, that scientific theories uh, are falsifiable. That's, that's their difference between a, a scientific theory and, and a, a, something like astrology, a, a pseudoscientific theory. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, um, but uh, one of the examples that we, was used was that Einstein predicted in his theory that, that the light would be bent around the sun, right? Um, That's right. According to relativity theory. Um, and I think it's, it's valuable to point out that there could be other reasons why light bends around the sun. 
in addition to the one that's in his theory, and that's why his theory isn't proven by this fact. This is a fact that supports his theory, but doesn't prove it. I think that's the, the logical point. Because there could be another 10 reasons or 15 reasons why light bends when it goes around the sun. We think it has no mass. What if it has a small amount of mass? No, uh, neutrinos didn't, didn't have any mass uh, just until the 90s, but then, then they found that they did for, for particular reasons. So if there was mass in, in, in photons, um, then the, sun, the sun's mass could also bend it. Now, the way to test that theory against other theory would be to know, do the mathematics and say, what would each of those theories predict? And then what is the actual number going around it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's important you know, for people to, to understand that Einstein's theory, in, in spite of the fact that it has been uh, supported by that kind of reliable evidence, and everyone was, for good reason, excited about that. It doesn't mean yet it, that it's proven to be true for all time until, because there's other possible explanations. Um, and, and scientists stick with what the most obvious, or at least the most reliable theory is now. Um, but if we, if we talk about uh, the, the uh, I mean, I'd like to kind of go back to the, the moral oughts too, because you're, you're, and you're talking about them, Stephen, I'd like it if you could kind of draw a distinction between what most people think of moral oughts, like thou shalt not steal and so on, as, as a religious commandment, and why it is that, that philosophers still talk about it as a moral ought, in spite of the fact that they don't think of it as a commandment from God. Well, you could think of a lot of the commands that a person observes in his or her life as religiously grounded. If you ask a person, well, why should I not kill? They might say, well, because God said so. And that's fine. If you believe in God and you think God issues commands about our behavior, um, then you would think that the justification for either doing or not doing something lies in God's command. That's fine. That's religion or what I would call piety. And I think it, it's really a gross mistake to confuse piety with morality. If you do something or f refuse to do something because God has commanded or forbidden you from doing it, that's acting according to God's will. That's piety. That's not morality. Um, whereas if you do something because you recognize um, through some value principles that the action is right or wrong, um, and you can defend those principles, um, not on religious grounds, which I think is a mistake, and I'll explain why in a second, but if you can defend those principles or values with reasons, then what you have is a kind of moral system which justifies how you behave or refuse to behave. Now, the reason why I think it's a mistake, why people are, are engaged in a kind of uh, a mistake, a philosophical, a very serious philosophical mistake when they think that the ground of morality is God's will, is because these same people also believe that God is good. Uh, and therefore, if God is good, then whatever God commands is our moral duty. The problem with thinking both that morality derives from what God commands and that God is good is that if morality is purely a function of what God wills, then there are no standards that we can appeal to to judge the goodness of God, because everything is simply the result of God's will. And so to say God commanded X, therefore X is good, is a trivial claim, because what if God had commanded not X? So God says, 
do not kill. Therefore, do not, not killing is good. But what if God had commanded, yeah, kill, kill at will, then that would be good. And so the whole notion of morality uh, becomes meaningless and just reduces to piety. So if you think that morality comes from God's will, but you also want to say that God is good, you're again, once again, inconsistent. You cannot say both that God is good and that morality derives from God's will because the judgment that God is good must involve appealing to some objective standard of goodness independent of God's will. And we won't mention the fact that in nature, if God is responsible for nature, that thou shalt kill is probably a, a, a commandment in nature because it's happening you know, all the time. Everyone's killing, uh, all the animals are killing each other all the time, and et cetera. So, so the, the idea that, that it could go the other way, I just wanted to mention, because that was a great argument. Um, and it also is a perfect lead into the end of the book about Socrates, because the, you, you have in there, uh, you, you discuss his uh, dialogue about piety and how the person who was pious, uh, who wanted to, to uh, bring his father to justice, uh, really didn't know what he was thinking. So right. who, who would like to cover the, the Socrates uh, thing? I, I could talk I'll about let Steve that. cover that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah the, the, uh, that's from the dialogue that Plato wrote called the Euthyphro. And it's a really interesting dialogue, both for the issue I just discussed, that is something good because the gods love it, or do the gods love it because it's good? And Socrates points out the fallacy of thinking that something can be good if the gods love it, if you also think the gods are good. But the other lesson of that dialogue, uh, and this is a lesson, you know, many of Plato's dialogues end on an inconclusive note. There's no answer to the question of what is piety or what is knowledge or um, what is justice. But what they usually end up showing is that people don't really know what they think they know. And this goes back to the point we were discussing before about epistemic humility. Socrates was extremely annoying. Um, and he was, <laughs> he would go around Athens um, pointing out to people that they really are not as knowledgeable and expert as they think they are, especially with respect to the most important things in life, justice, beauty, um, right and wrong and good and bad. Um, and I think the, the real lesson here of these sorts of dialogues is that, um, first of all, you should think about what you're doing. This was the uh, in the Euthyphro dialogue. Euthyphro is a young man who's prosecuting his father for murder. Now, it may be that that's the right thing to do. It may be that it's the wrong thing to do. That's not what's at issue here. Socrates doesn't care whether it's right or wrong to prosecute his father. What he cares about is whether Euthyphro knows that it's the right thing to do. Because if Euthyphro is acting in such a way that he's performing something, doing something, without really knowing the moral character of the action he's performing, then he's behaving irresponsibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that, that dialogue, and of course, as you said, uh, he always ends, uh, or most often ends inconclusively, because it seems to me his goal is just to get people to think uh, more clearly, rather than to get them to think a particular way or another. Um, and to think about to think about themselves, you know, the real yeah. lesson here is uh, what he calls the examined life. To think about the world and about other people, but especially to think about yourself and to examine yourself and reflect on what you do and do not know. There's a good example in in that um, in your book about the Delphic Oracle. Now, Socrates makes the assumption or operates on the assumption that the Delphic Oracle is correct, but of course, it's a little like astrology. Um, and so, so how does he, how does he, he the Delphic Oracle tells uh, someone from, from Athens that Socrates is the most wise man in, in Athens. 
and that information gets back to Socrates and Socrates ponders it for a decade or so and then comes up with an answer as to why that might actually be true because he can't just say you're just wrong. Even that was his original thing. So why don't you right. tell that story? Yeah, All oracles, right? are, ne oracles are never wrong. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Do you want to talk uh, about Socrates on, on that one, Larry? No, Steve, Steve can handle Socrates. Okay, great. Uh, oracles are never wrong. Um, this is a lesson that we see in uh, Herodotus's history of the Persian Wars. Um, the uh, a, I, I think it's the, the king of Lydia decides he's going to attack the kingdom or the empire, the Persian Empire. So he goes to the oracle to see whether it's a good thing to do. And the oracle says, if you attack that empire, uh, a, if you attack, a great empire will be destroyed. And so the king says, oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and attack because that's green light. Uh, in fact, he attacked and he loses miserably. And what happens? Oh, well, yeah, kingdom is destroyed, his own. So oracles are never wrong. You just have to know how to interpret them. And so what Socrates did, going back to what Larry was describing as, as good scientific method, is he tests, he tests the theory. Am I indeed the wisest? And the only way to test it is empirically. Let's go around and see what it is that people do and do not know. So first he comes to the conclusion that in a certain sense, he is not wise because there are people who are better at making barrels. There are people who are better weavers. Uh, there are people who are better at war. And so if by wisdom you mean a kind of specialized or technical skill, Socrates says, yeah, I'm not wise. I'm not as wise as these people. But he also recognizes through these examinations that people not only have this technical know-how, but they think they have other knowledge, which in, fact, which in fact they don't have. They think that uh, an individual might think that their political skill um, allows them also to be an expert in other things, um, and especially expert in justice and, and the arts and so on. And so Socrates concludes that true wisdom consists not in having this little skill in this or that domain, not in being a good horse person or a good archer, um, but it's really a transformation in the notion of Sophia or wisdom. Um, and Socrates says true human wisdom consists in knowing about what you know. And he, of course, famously said, I know that I know nothing. Um, now, that could mean that I know one thing, namely, I don't know nothing. I don't know anything. So Nobody else knows anything, but I at least know one thing, namely that I know nothing. Therefore, I'm wiser than all of them. Um, that, I mean, that's cute. But I think what he really means is that I'm wiser than everybody because I have the proper assessment of myself as a knower. I don't think I know when I don't know. And that makes me wiser than everybody else. Yeah. And uh, it, it seems to me that it's uh, that kind of attitude towards yourself is what would save you from both vanity and, and humility. And that you're just, you, you're right in the middle, Ron. You, you see who you are. You, you see your limitations. And that seems to be a, a, an easier way to live life. And, and uh, we haven't talked about the practicalities of this, that this, this creates um, good thinking or, or more intelligent, rational thinking, creates a happier life for the people who do it. Um, but we have, I'd like to go to the questions. Uh, oh, one, one more aside. You talked about the, the, the issue about God and, and his rules, and, but he's the source of them, so they have to be good. I, I, I think just to, to help people understand the other time, at that time, most of the kings did exactly that. Whatever they said was the law, and, and it didn't matter how rational it was or how irrational it was or how personal it was. Everyone just had to adjust to the king's rules. Um, and... Uh, 
and the kings all told everybody that they had the divine right to do this. Um, and, uh, and we are at least a little bit away from that thinking. Uh, we certainly haven't gotten over it altogether. Right. Right? Well, because we distinguish between what's legal and what's moral. If you right. thought that what's moral is simply what the law demands, then you'd have no basis for criticizing a law as unjust or immoral. But we right. do think that laws should be subject to that kind of moral criticism, so they must be very distinct. We've, we've gotten the idea that maybe we're making this up as we go along, um, and, and, and that we have a right to criticize the, what we're making up. Uh, that's what it seems to me a little bit. So we have several questions. For, thank you very much. Um, so George Stefner has asked a question. Is it a fact, in quotation marks, that Trump conspired with the Russians, or is that just popular groupthink belief like many other facts proven by consensus? How would you deal with that? Larry, you want that one? Uh, I'm not aware of the evidence that would uh, conclusively demonstrate it was a fact that Trump conspired with the Russians. Uh, I mean, what we need to recognize is that this is an empirical question and its answer requires investigation, uh, interviewing the right people, looking at uh, trails of communication, th- things like that. So I'm not, I'm not uh, equipped with the, uh, the knowledge to say whether it is a fact. Stephen, you want to jump in on that Trump fact or not? No, I just agree. If, if it is a fact, um, that's something that would have to be determined, as Larry said, by empirical investigation. Let's see the evidence. And if the evidence points in that direction, um, that's, that should justify our belief that he did conspire. But, you know, I haven't seen, I've seen what I've read in the newspapers, um, and given my beliefs about Trump, I wouldn't put it past him. Um, but, um, it's only to be rationally responsible. It's only a conclusion that should be drawn when there's sufficient evidence to warrant it. Probably 30, 40 years from now when they open up the files, right? (laughs) Uh, I hope sooner than that, because it would be very good and very important to know. Yeah. All right. Here's another question uh, from Dave Hildebrandt. I've always been very impressed with the dialogues of Krishnamurti. Have either of you looked into that or does anybody, any, any observations, Krishnamurti? No. Okay. Nope. None whatsoever. Sorry. No problem. And, um, but here's a great final, final question that we'll have from Ron Nasher. Can you say something about the virtues and their sources, Aristotle and eudaimonia? Anybody want to take Aristotle on? Yeah, eudaimonia is the ancient Greek term. Um, It's often translated as happiness. I think it's better translated as flourishing or well-being. And for Aristotle, um, the virtues, and virtue, the word is arete, and it just really means excellence. And so even scissors have a virtue. Uh, You know, if the function, it's related to the function of a thing. And so the function of the scissors is to cut, uh, a, virtu- uh, a virtuous scissors cuts well or cuts with excellence. Uh, in the case of human beings, Aristotle says that we, we too have a proper function, and that is to exercise reason in both thought and in action. That's what we do. That's what distinguishes us from other sorts of creatures. And so the virtuous person is the person who exercises this function with excellence. Um, and so what we regard as the virtues courage, generosity, and justice, um, these are examples of a human being who is excellent at reasoning. Uh, Let's say in the the case of courage, this person is excellent at reasoning on how to face danger. 
uh, in the case of generosity, another virtue, this person is excellent in knowing how to give or how to donate just the right amount, not too much and not too little. And the virtues, when practiced by human beings, will lead to this flourishing. Uh, the virtuous person is the person who flourishes as a rational agent. Yeah, it's, um, it's a different idea. And it's interesting because uh, the Christian religion borrowed a whole bunch of ideas uh, from the ancient Greeks, but put them in a different context. So virtue and vice are, are basically thought of in terms of you know, do you follow God's will or do you not follow God's will? Um, and so that's, that's a, a, a different use of it. Uh, but you're, you're excelling at one thing. You're excelling at following or, uh, God's will. So if you take it out of that context, you, you want to say something about that? I was just going to say what, what Christianity did was they added additional virtues to the, to, the, uh, to the ordinary virtues that we find in Plato. They added the uh, theological virtues. Mm -hmm. Yes, some of which may or may not contribute to our happiness. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I, I, although in their view, it can, what it contributes to is your salvation um, exactly. if, you, if you believe in such a thing. That's the ironic part of it is is that they say you shouldn't pursue your happiness now because you 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 need to get saved. But if the saving if the saving wasn't enjoyable, uh, nobody would want it anyway. And therefore, it's just like delayed gratification is what they're asking for, not not giving up your happiness. Um, so they really aren't yeah. And you be, you better be sure you you better be sure of that afterlife because. Um, if in, in fact, we have only this uh, earthly life and we forsake all happiness, counting on it in the next life, we've made a big mistake. Right. You can well, invert Pascal's wager in that way. Pascal's wager, and that's what I wanted to end with. So, so you, you talk about Pascal's wager, and I, I think actually that Pascal's wager should be, should be turned upside down. Um, because it seems to me that, you know, first of all, it's a prudential uh, uh, ought, a decision that's prudential, and you'd think that that if a god was in charge of this thing, that he might see through that um, and might judge it accordingly. Um, but the other thing is, um, I, I, I'm more on the Thomas More end of this one. You know, he said it, it's kind of ridiculous that that uh, we prefer uh, vice, which brings its pain in this life and eternal pain, to virtue, which brings its pleasure in this life, and leads to eternal salvation. So it, it, it's, it's just very ironic. And I think it's because Moore was working with an ancient Greek idea of virtue, that it's excellence in life, instead of within the completely Christian idea of virtue. And he, he, he made some other funny jokes about that. He said, if, if, uh, if really we weren't supposed to be happy in life, then, then the Beatitudes would be make people miserable. Don't help the poor. Don't help the sick. Make everybody as miserable as possible so they're prepared for heaven, if that's what it was. He said that's obviously wrong. So, so it has to be, it can't be that God wants us to be miserable. And we'll just, you know, leave it with Thomas More because he, he, he disagreed with Pascal about that. And I think if the wager is, I think that the wager, you don't have to believe that there's a God or not a God. But I think if you're going to believe in him, you should believe he's got a good personality, a reliable personality, uh, somebody that you can count on. Uh, yeah, Pascal's God does not have good. Pascal's God does not have a good personality. No, no, and and so it seems to me that first of all, our beliefs don't change the reality whether God exists or not. But it would seem to me that it would be much more useful to have a belief in His personality being a good one um, than to just believe He exists. Uh, and I, so well, we'll we'll stop with that. But I, it just seems more likely 
because um, that's sort of what Jesus said, I th- think, in spite of the fact that that's the source of all the other stuff. Because he said, imagine the best father you can, multiply that 70 times, seven times, that's, way, that's what my father is like. So that, that's a good personality, right? Um, but in any case, our beliefs don't change the reality. We'll find out sometime or we won't. <laughs> and that's, that's the way philosophers do it. <laughs> So thank you very much. I, I think that was both your book and the conversation was a good example of, of your virtue in explaining ideas. Well, thank so, you for having us. Thank excellent. you, George. Thank you so much. And so ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. We don't have as much time as thousands of years on our side, but, but we're getting there. So thank you very much. And we'll see you again at another program. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.